The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. It's the end of 1978. Sylvester's breakout record, Step 2, is topping the charts. And You Make Me Feel Mighty Real is blasting out of speaker systems and discos across the world. But that world is changing. I was invited to the Grammy Awards and I was nominated and there was this whole thing like disco is dead and rock and roll live forever and it's very redneck and racist and all of that because we've got to get our white rock and roll music back in the mainstream because you've got all of these blacks and latins and gays and it's killing the industry. Saturday Night Fever, the biggest selling album of all time at that point, helped disco music go mainstream. That's code for white folks had become its main audience. But as the 70s come to an end, there's a feeling in the air, a reaction to the sound of disco and all that disco represents culturally. Sylvester had reluctantly embraced disco. What happens when the sound that brought you success starts to fade? This is Sound Barrier, a show about artists who break new ground in music and culture. I'm Jason King, musician and journalist, professor and chair of the Clive Davis Institute of Recorded Music at NYU. This season, we're looking at the innovative, trailblazing star of 70s and 80s pop music, Sylvester. This is episode five, Backlash Blues. Unless your name is Adele or Beyonce, making a big follow-up record is hard. That's a challenge for any artist, to follow up their initial hit and not become a one-hit wonder. For Sylvester's second album, he could have moved away from synth-driven disco into one of the other genres that he loved, like R&B or gospel. But instead, he chose to double down. More long-playing tracks, more synth work from Patrick Cowley, more glitter, and more excess, giving you disco at its most decadent. Stars was recorded both at Fantasy Records in Berkeley and Island Studios in London. It wasn't a cheap album to make. Sylvester, who appears on the cover in a luxurious fur coat, wasn't exactly living on a budget. Stars is as long as an ordinary album, but it's only four tracks. And those long tracks were architecturally built and arranged for dance floor ecstasy. One of my favorites is Sylvester's cover of I Who Have Nothing. Benny King, who'd already had hits like Stand By Me, recorded it in 1963. What I love about the original is its severe strings and its stop and start phrasing. I, I have nothing. I, I who have no one must watch you go dancing by. Wrapped in the arms of somebody else When darling is I Who love Martha Wash That's always been one of my favorite songs I remember that song, the original version So when he decided to do the up-tempo version I said, okay, cool You know, all we had to sing was I, I who have nothing That's really all we <laughs> Really all we had to sing but it rocked. Oh, 
Sylvester saw an opportunity to amplify the song's suspense and melodrama. There's that pulsating four-to-the-floor beat, Patrick Cowley's spacey synth effects, and those floating, elongated two-part harmonies between Martha and Sylvester. The non-stop arrangement takes its own sweet time. Long play timing was designed to give disco dancers time to meet and flirt and cruise and touch and who knows what else. Disco songs were long playing because they were meant to mimic the intensity of orgasms on the dance floor. Scholar Richard Dyer once called that disco's great gift, whole body eroticism. Sylvester and the band must have been pumped for 1979. Step two was climbing the charts and crossing over. Stars was getting ready to come out, and they were pressing lots of copies in anticipation of a big hit. And Sylvester had finally gotten the management at San Francisco Opera House to agree to let him perform there, the fulfillment of a long-held dream. They were at the top of the world. But soon, the ground would start shifting beneath them. Filmmaker Stephen Winter. There was a culture war going on that was being fought between the San Franciscans and other factions. And, you know, with a war, people have to choose a side. And all across America, folks were getting surprised at how many were choosing San Francisco's side. It was very much understood across the country that if you were San Francisco, you were a certain kind of way, who had a certain kind of feelings about things. And they were liberal. They were expansive. And those ideas were gaining traction. Now, after hundreds of years of people hating, quote, fags and queers, a city has emerged where homosexuality is not only tolerated, but thrives. That's from a local news station, KRON. It was a special report called Gays, the San Francisco Experiment. It showed how San Francisco in the late 70s had become something unique, a major American city with progressive values and a gay community with unmistakable political clout. Exhibit A, the election of Castro icon Harvey Milk to the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. But for many, he was just the beginning. President of the board and future U.S. Senator, Dianne Feinstein. I think the gay community is a viable political force in San Francisco, which wants to be consulted and should be consulted on major issues. Uh, and I think the no on six vote in California was a very effective test of the political power of the gay community. Proposition 6 was a ballot initiative that would have barred gay and lesbian teachers from working in California's public school system. It was defeated in early November 1978. These days, we're dealing with something similar, the rise of so-called don't-say-gay bills in Florida and other states. Harvey Milk had been a vocal opponent of Prop 6. He talked on KRON about how his support went beyond the gay community. In New York, when Mayor Kosh talked about uh, gay rights, the firefighters got very upset and took to the streets and said, never. In San Francisco, the firefighters helped put a gay person in office. So as Sylvester is out on tour, you can imagine how good life feels. Hit records, adoring fans, glamour, money. At home, in a city where queer community is celebrated. 
Monday, November 27th, 1978. I've just been given some news and uh, I'm not sure whether or not it's true. I was just given the uh, information just a few seconds before all of you turn on your radios. Uh, maybe you'll find out some more news. I, I hope it's nothing that's serious. San Francisco Supervisor Dan White, a former policeman and firefighter, slips into City Hall through a window on the lower floor so he can avoid the metal detectors in the lobby. He's carrying his 38 caliber Smith & Wesson service revolver, loaded with hollow-point bullets. There's a clip from that day. The camera's shaky, the room is crowded with reporters. Board President Diane Feinstein, her eyes glazed over in shock, broke the news. As president of the board, I'm, 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 as president of the board of supervisors, it's my duty to make this announcement. Both Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk have been shot and killed. The The suspect is Supervisor Dan White. ABC's local station, KGO, had a reporter at City Hall as the shocking scene unfolded. Through our sources, it appears this is how it all happened. It was in the study, I'm told, where the shooting took place. It appears he then raced out a back door and down the corridor toward the supervisor's offices. Once there, I'm told White allegedly called Harvey Milk to his office and shot him in the head. Wow. Are you trying to make me cry? Are you trying to make me cry? Journalist Robert Julian Stone lived in the Castro at the time. When Harvey was murdered, we were all wounded. It was personal. They weren't just trying to kill Harvey and George Moscone. Dan White was trying to kill all of us, and we knew it. And so there was this incredible, spontaneous outpouring of grief, and it resulted in this unforgettable march down Market Street with thousands of people all carrying candles, marching in silence to mourn Harvey's passing. How are you feeling right now? Well, I feel very sad. Sad and angry at the same time. Loss. I don't think of this as only a gay issue. I, I think... Harvey Milk was something for everybody. Thank you very much. Stephen Winter. People were listening to the message that San Francisco had to say, which is why the assassination of Harvey Milk was such a devastating loss. Remember how we started this series with Sylvester's performance at the War Memorial Opera House? How it was so meaningful for Sylvester personally to play there? But there's another context for that show and what it meant to the people there. It was just a few months after Harvey Milk was assassinated. That night was about a community coming together, celebrating in the wake of tragedy. And the emotion in the room was supercharged as a result. Journalist Robert Julian Stone. Harvey was murdered in November of 1978. Sylvester's show at the Opera House came in 1979. So if there was anything that could have picked us up, it was Sylvester. Thank you. This was the only time in this show that I... Can I have some water, please? That um, I get to talk to you, 
sort of, and sing to you too, and a song that sort of expresses the way I feel about all of you. Even though I can't see you all, I know a lot of y'all out there, child. Y'all are my friends. Fantasy Records was making a live album that night, but the tape you're hearing isn't from the record. It comes from master tapes that have been sitting in a vault since 1979. Sylvester had asked a man named Randy Schiller to do sound that night at the Opera House. Randy was part of the local gay dance scene. In fact, he designed the sound at the City Disco, where Sylvester had danced and performed so many times over the years. They were friends, something that was true in one way or another for most everyone in the room. At the top of the song, he asks for the house lights to go up so he can see the crowd. Look into their faces. This song is dedicated to all of you. You are my friend. I never knew And after the chorus comes, he pays tribute to the deep bond, the kinship, that he felt for background singers Martha Wash and Isora Rose. You see, these girls, Martha and Isora. I met them three years ago. Was it February, Martha? Three years ago. A little audition we held on 6th Avenue in Judah. I will not forget. We had our first rehearsal in a Volkswagen on our way to Marin County. And these girls have stuck with me all through everything, y'all, and they're here right now. I want you to know that. Patti LaBelle had just released her sentimental anthem, You Are My Friend. It was on her debut album as a solo artist that same year. Tonight, Sylvester's cover becomes its own anthem an anthem to the Castro community, Patti LaBelle. I felt just really special when he did You Are My Friend. I mean, he's talking about a friend from the way that I was talking about a friend from my heart. And when you see a man who's dressing in drag, and then they look so much like you, and you hear them and they sound so much like you, you just say that, you know, he's the male version of Patti LaBelle. New York DJ Nicky Ciano would play sets at clubs like Studio 54. He loves Sylvester's dance floor hits, but also ballads like this one. You are my friend, the live version with Martha and Isora behind him. Oh my God, that shit is awesome. That is like, I play it at the beginning of the night all the time. I'm sorry, Patty, <laughs> I love you to death. But Sylvester smashed that song. You Are My Friend is also a favorite of award-winning actor, singer, and writer Billy Porter. For me, it became about this idea of chosen family. You know, this space that we as queer people exist in where sometimes we lose the connection to our biological families because they don't understand us. It's like the reality that sometimes the worst of the rejection comes from your own people. Your own family is devastating. And so my connection to You Are My Friend really was based on, like, that's what it felt like to me. It was just the embrace of Chosen Family. Did you ever hear James Brown's Live at the Apollo from 1963? Or Aretha Franklin's live 1972 gospel album Amazing Grace? 
Just like those classics, Living Proof captures this unique moment in time. It captures Sylvester's approach to musical excellence. And it captures the emotion and the energy of his community. In my opinion, Living Proof is one of the greatest live albums of all time. You see, y'all know I've been around a long time, don't you? And the only reason we have stayed around as long as we have is because all of you have supported me and my group for so long. And you know what? If y'all keep on acting the way you do, we'll stick around just a little while longer, okay? Is that all right with you? But backstage, there were different feelings, frustration and suspicion. It once again centered on Harvey Fuqua and Nancy Pitts. After months of arguments and a growing feeling they were being taken advantage of, guitarist James Wierick and the rest of the band had brought reinforcements to make sure they got paid. There was tension before the gig because we had like a union rep there and a lawyer arguing about money and insisting that we be paid a certain amount of money. And we were all pissed. And I don't think Sylvester knew any of this was going on. On stage that night, Sylvester was using his music to pull a community together in the wake of tragedy. But in Sylvester's closest circle, the center was not going to hold much longer. During the disco craze, when disco was the rage of the world, of the entire world, after two years or three years of above-ground popularity, there was this huge backlash of rock and pop musicians that just killed the movement, killed the sound. In July 1979, a Chicago DJ named Steve Dahl advertised reduced-priced entry to a White Sox game at Comiskey Park if he brought a disco record. Hey, listen! This is now officially the world's largest anti-disco rally! And everybody's gonna know us rock and rollers here in Chicago think disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Disco sucks! Well, listen, we took all the disco records that you brought tonight, but we're gonna blow them up real good. The crowd stormed the field. It got completely out of hand. Mel Sharon was a record executive and investor in New York's iconic gay club, The Paradise Garage. Sylvester had performed there many times. You know, people call it disco music. Our music was not disco. The music that we danced to for years and years was danceable R&B. And Sylvester was a sole R&B artist. And it was a very homophobic, very racist thing that that asshole did in Comiskey Park, you know, burning... Why did he burn the records? They were jealous because no one was listening to that rock crap, you know? So that's why they burnt it. And the whole record industry immediately changed. The next day, you could not use the word disco. Disco was appropriated and defiled. Raped, as Barry White once said. By that, he meant disco was ruthlessly exploited by a music industry that saturated the marketplace with records that were repetitive and formulaic. 
Here's Bob the Drag Queen, the Emmy-nominated performer who got his start on RuPaul's Drag Race, incidentally lip-syncing to Sylvester's music. I think that the gentrification of disco contributed to everyone being like, enough. You know, when Ethel Merman released her disco album, people were like, all right, we got to stop this. We're going to have to stop. Ethel Merman has entered the chat. This counter-reaction to disco wasn't innocent. It was organized. It was structural. It was a reaction against all that disco represented as a soundtrack of gay liberation. You got to remember that disco was a music that made black and brown queer people feel like they mattered in a culture that's consistently anti-black and anti-brown. Disco centered the voices and the faces of black women like Gloria Gaynor and Donna Summer and queer men of color like Sylvester. And so it was at the height of the disco backlash that Sylvester released Stars. His previous album, Step 2, had disco singles, but it also had ballads and other non-dance tracks. Stars was an immersive, full-on disco record. While it made the charts, it didn't score any big hits. Given all the money poured into the album, this was a big problem. Fantasy Records publicist Terry Hinty. The Stars album was an expensive album to make. That was just part of the overdoing vibe of that period. And the music industry that had gotten rich on disco was beginning to cave in, too. The 70s were kind of a very extravagant period. The labels were spending lots of money. There were some big duds, expensive duds. But labels carried on with parties and, you know, just extravagances. You know, just these really unrealistic expectations that everything was going to go gold or platinum. Local L.A. news reported on how the fallout was felt all the way to a record store on the Sunset Strip. Sales boomed right through 1977 and early 78 with records like Saturday Night Fever, but then the bubble burst. And by the end of last year, records were piling up in the stores. Bob Delanoy manages Tower Records on Sunset Strip. They just got caught in, well, hey, the boat's coming in and let's get ready for it. And the boat didn't come in. In hindsight, the release of Stars in early 1979 couldn't have come at a worse time. Then we put out that dreadful Stars album. I don't know what we were trying to pull. I got four songs on an album, but we were being European. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we were thinking. I don't know. I don't know what anybody was thinking, but that was pretty horrible. Sylvester kind of disowned Stars in that interview, like he talked down the song Mighty Real before. But listening now, Stars doesn't feel dreadful, at least not to me. If anything, it feels like it was ahead of its time, bringing disco into new territory. I Need Somebody to Love Tonight is my favorite track on the album. I think it's one of Patrick Cowley's all-time classics. It's slinky, it's foreboding. I love that synth music. It's like the most sensual soundtrack ever to gay men cruising in the 1970s. I was having a terrible fight with Fantasy Records about image. They told me that disco was dead and that my image was too outrageous and that I would not become into the mainstream of music because of what I was or looked like. 
With stars failing to live up to its commercial hopes, and disco officially yesterday's news, Fantasy decided to make a desperate pivot. As they had before with Sylvester's first album, they decided to try and change his image. I said, you're not changing me. I said, as a matter of fact, I'll show you. And I had this big drag queen purple negligee robe or something, and I was standing in the lobby of the record company. <laughs> the details shift. Pink negligee, purple negligee. But everyone who was around Fantasy Records at the time remembers it. Marty Blackman worked in promotions at the label. It was a directive from Fantasy Records to say, Sylvester, we want you and your image to be more like Teddy Pendergrass. So Sylvester's response to that was he came to this big gathering at Fantasy and kind of like made his entrance in a pink chiffon flowing gown and kind of like sashayed down the staircase. They were afraid of me at that point because no one in history at that time had been as outrageous as me. He would still rebel against it and say, accept me for who I am. Backup singer Martha Wash. You may not like it, but this is me. A three-piece suit, no. I think when you are dealing with your persona as well as the person that you are as a human being, and people want to keep changing you and changing you and changing you, and you have to still continue to fight and fight and fight, it gets tiring, but you keep fighting anyway. Maybe realizing for the next generation to come, it would be easier for people to be who they were, as they say, authentic. In March of 1980, Sylvester took a trip to New York City. He was there to do some press, some recording, and to see friends. He planned to go to a party for singer Patti LaBelle. Fantasy Records publicist Terry Hindi. Sylvester was in New York, and I had him doing one of these all-day schedules of interviews. And all of a sudden, we got word that he had been arrested for robbing someone of several valuable coins, which just seemed completely bizarre. Sylvester's manager and longtime friend, Tim McKenna. So they grabbed him out of the lobby of the St. Moritz Hotel and booked him and went through this whole thing. It was just a horrible situation. He had to spend the night in jail. A lot of people, of course, also thought it was a publicity stunt. New York Post loved it. Jeannie Tracy had recently started singing backup for Sylvester. She was in New York, too. I was waiting for him at my hotel to pick me up. And I waited and waited and waited. The news came on, and there's his face there saying that he had been arrested. And I screamed. And I said, oh, my God. His picture was plastered all over the papers. It was all in the news, all over the world. It was a perfect tabloid story for this moment in early 1980. It fed right into a couple of narratives. There's the easy one. Celebrities behaving badly. A tabloid favorite. Then there's the pile-on to the disco is dead story that had been worming its way into the culture that year. So dead, in fact, that even one of its biggest stars is forced to resort to a life of crime. Of course, it was all bullshit. Terry Hinty. It turned out to be a false arrest. The person who committed the robbery was impersonating Sylvester. The imposter, Michael T. Henson, was caught weeks later. He had been passing himself off as Sylvester, cashing bad checks, and was finally arrested after being shot in the foot by an angry jeweler. This was like a really sensational story. New York Post, Evening News, 
disco artist, you know, arrested for robbery, just completely insane. His name was out there and someone stole it to commit a crime. And then Sylvester had to pick up the pieces. He was finally exonerated, which, by the way, the evening news programs didn't carry that story. Because the crime made such better copy. And the truth? So much more mundane. This whole incident has a larger context as well. It has to do with the history of black musicians and the police. Stephen Winter. They put Sylvester in a perp walk. They made sure that all the press were outside the hotel, and they handcuffed him and walked him outside with all the flashbulbs and put him in the police car. Another black man being dragged through the mud. It's inconceivable that Elton John, as a for instance, would have been compelled to spend the night in jail if something like this was happening to him. Jeannie Tracy. Sylvester told me that he was in jail with, you know, murderers and things like that. And he was just livid because, you know, that wasn't him. And so for him to be put in that kind of position is just crazy. Let's unpack this moment in New York. This is when all these structural forces, racist law enforcement, the media all too ready to demonize a black artist, homophobic backlash, they all come crashing down on Sylvester at once. It was a moment in which he could have been forever canceled for something he didn't even do. You can't imagine David Bowie or Lou Reed facing anything like this. And Sylvester wasn't alone. His experience is part of a longer story that stretches back to artists like Billie Holiday and Miles Davis. Artists whose lives were also transformed by systems of oppression and mistreatment. We also have to think of Sylvester as part of that story too. Coming up next time on Sound Barrier. Is there a more shady business than the music business? Barbara Streisand had turned it down, Diana Ross turned it down, Cher turned it down, Donna Summer turned it down, and I said, nobody's gonna buy this song. He said, it's gonna be a hit. Major changes rock Sylvester's musical family. When I told Sylvester that I was moving to New York, he begged me not to do it. With his beloved background singers out making hits on their own, Sylvester goes looking for inspiration. I mean, you don't create great music with someone you hate. It just doesn't work well. I know that for a fact. <laughs> That's next time on Sound Barrier. Sound Barrier is a Spotify original podcast from Best Case Studios. It was hosted by me, Jason King and written by me, Adam Pincus, Brent Katz, and Stephen Winter. Brent Katz is senior producer, and Karkeet is our producer. Associate producers are Ashley Warren and Ali Gallo. Josh Gamson is consulting producer. Co-producers are Louis Spiegler, Christian D. Bruin, and Tim Smith. This episode was edited by Vanessa Lowe, with assistance from James Hansen, and mixed and mastered by Dean White. Paul Dallas is our archival producer, with help from Katie Heiserman. Music is by Gautam Shrikishan, Sam Retzer, and Roger Neal, with additional music from Brent Katz, Blue Dot Sessions, and Five Alarm. Music supervision by Joel C. High and Sammy Posner, with help from Ricky Holman. Executive producers are me, Jason King, Adam Pincus for Best Case Studios, and Stephen Ames Brown for The Sylvester Estate. Corinne Gilliard is executive producer for Spotify. Special thanks to Harry Weinger, Shirley Ramos, Brian Smith, Linda Cohen, Galen Mullins, Kevin Pham, Baron Farmer, Gina Delvac, and Elena Myers. Find and follow Sound Barrier only on Spotify.